0: Hello, today we're bringing you something new and exciting. We've got a brand new series from History Extra, History's Greatest Cities, where we're going to be roaming the streets and sites of some of Europe's most historic cities in the company of travel writer Paul Bloomfield and a host of expert historians. We'll be charting the history of these cities and dropping in some top travel tips along the way. This is the first episode in the series on Berlin, but if you want to find out more and listen to the rest of the series, episodes will be released weekly in an independent feed. So just search for History's Greatest Cities and subscribe to bring that up. That's History's Greatest Cities and subscribe to find future episodes released weekly.
5: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast miniseries history's greatest cities, exploring Europe's most beautiful, intriguing, and historically significant cities. I'm Paul Bloomfield, travel writer and history fan, and in each episode of this series, I'll be virtually roaming the streets and sights of a great metropolis in the company of an expert historian guide. Together, we'll delve into origin myths and uncover stories of shifting populations, conflicts and culture, wealth and weakness. And we'll visit key locations that reveal fascinating insights into the people and events that shape the modern city. Today, I'm joined by historian and travel writer Rory McLean, who for over 40 years has divided his time between Berlin and the UK. Award-winning author of a dozen titles, his immersive book, Berlin, Imagine a City, tells the story of the German capital through the voices of 21 characters. Some, such as a medieval poet, are fictional while others, including Prussian King Frederick the Great, Marlene Dietrich and Nazi propaganda chief Joseph Goebbels, were all too real. Together we'll head back to the medieval settlement on the River Spree, before fast-forwarding through successive eras. We'll stroll stately boulevards, admire grand theatres, museums and churches, and trace the infamous wall that divided the city for nearly four decades. Rory, welcome and thanks for joining us to share your insights about Berlin through the centuries. Oh, My
3: pleasure, Paul. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you for asking me.
5: We'll start with a topic that you touch on quite a lot in your book, that idea of becoming. The life of almost every city is cyclical with peaks and troughs in wealth, influence, industry and culture. But I think Berlin, perhaps more than any other European city, seems to be in an almost constant state of reinvention creating a new, an image, a style, a reputation many times over the centuries. Even the genesis of its names being somewhat touched up by Berliners. What can you tell us about the origin of the name Berlin and of the city itself, Rory?
3: Oh, well, I think it wins the prize for reinvention Berlin. You, you know, for for centuries, it was all but a heathen wilderness. It, it resisted the Holy Roman Emperors and, and later the Polish kings. It, it was called Das Land in der Mitte, the Land in the Middle, And one of the last places of Europe to be Christianized, it was in medieval times, a minor town bypassed by Europe's main trade routes, really so unimportant. And its name it comes from <laughs> really enticing from the old Slavic word for a uh, swamp <laughs> <laughs> berl, berl, and uh, but but since the uh, the good burgers even way back in medieval times, weren't very happy with being named after a swamp, they suggested the name didn't uh, spring from um, from a swamp but from from the German word for bear. You know, bear, hence a bear, appears in the coat of arms of the city. Right from the beginning, Berlin just embraced the ideas of um, <laughs> reality and the story it wanted to tell. One of my uh, favorite stories took place in 1448 when the uh, the, the leader... Kurfust Frederick the Iron Tooth. He ordered the building of the the Schloss, the beginning of the Schloss, and Berliners. Wow, oh, they didn't like that. They defied him and and opened the uh, River Spree's floodgates to swamp its foundations. And uh, an Iron Tooth responded with with typical viciousness. 500 knights, who were really just bully boys, <laughs> took to the streets, murdered the rebels. But in time, the Berliners rebuilt that story into the myth about how defiant they were, how the Berliner unville, you know, their independence. Whereas in truth, in, across all of history, they've never managed to stage a successful revolution.
5: It's incredible. And as you say, that period of growth and then a very strong, if you like, iron-fisted ruler trying to create the city in his own mind is, is something that gets repeated a lot. So how did this small town, which was at that time really about fishing, I guess, and agriculture, how did that town grow to become such a prominent place? Well,
3: war, <laughs> war, necessity and discipline. This may feel a bit like dusty history, but it's war that defined Berlin, especially the Thirty Years' War, which began about uh, 1618, when primarily the Habsburgs and Swedish armies killed about half of the settlement's populations, and thousands more were lost to typhoid, famine, plague, robber barons. The survivors often starved to death because uh, of the land, that Berlin was on the marshy swamp land was very poor, unproductive soil, and by 1638, Berlin, which arguably would within three, four hundred years become a capital of Europe, was reduced to only 845 houses. And then it was saved. It was saved by an austere and ambitious despot, the first of the Hohenzollern. Electors, And he was determined that Berlin, which really meant Brandenburg and Prussia, would never again be devastated by marauding armies. And he harnessed its survivors' fear to transform this devastated outpost and uh, built massive new fortifications, extended the town, and branded Berlin with his um, Calvinist energy. And that was the first or the first of many moments where, uh, or turning points in history, where in return for growth and stability, the Berliners decided not to whisper a word of complaint.
5: I suppose one thing we should probably do is just set the scene a bit and explain what Brandenburg and Prussia were in terms of polities and how Berlin fits into that. Because obviously Brandenburg was the state around Berlin, of which Berlin became the capital, and then Prussia was a wider land, which Frederick had ambitions for. Yes, indeed. And at that time when he was rebuilding, I think you write in your book that Berlin's never been ethnically German as such. So there was an influx of people from all sorts of other areas as well at that time, wasn't there?
3: Yes, especially from Silesia, so what is today Poland, a huge, huge numbers of migrants came in all through history. In fact, other parts of Germany, people in Hamburg or in um, Munich, parts of the real Germany, they look down on Berlin, even though it's the capital now, of course. Again, they look down on Berlin as a Slavic city.
5: Okay, so th- this is a city that's been rebuilt and made strong by e- another iron fish- ruler here, but, but we're talking here about Friedrich Wilhelm, the soldier king. And that process continued, didn't it? He, he was there, he did some fighting, he did some building, and then that carried on uh, under his successors, didn't it? Indeed, yeah. Well, again, for, so the soldier king, uh, Friedrich
3: Wilhelm, he turned his city, his Prussia, into um, a great garrison. Prussia was really a state built by an army of the kingdom's revenue was spent on its fighting men and armories. And uh, it was a place where absolute obedience was demanded of every man. So once again, Berliners' devotion to, to strong leaders saved them, made them more and more powerful. Because berlin the land, as we said at the beginning had was so poor they could not feed themselves, so they had to expand they had to <laughs> mm, uh attack and borrow from other nations if they were going to prosper but of course, with this devotion to strong leaders it's it's natural that a a highly conformist society should produce radicals, and rebellion grows out of convention it's it's the correlate of course, so on uh Berlin's foundations, um, the free thinker, the reformist, the anarchist, and the artist, they lashed out at the status quo, goading the conformist to question, to rethink, and to be independent. And so these contrary forces really started to come to life in the time of uh, Frederick Wilhelm and and, and afterwards through his son and and grandson, Frederick the Great. And uh, really, they nurtured this complex society tangled with contradictions, uneasy with itself, yet at the same time marked by pride, at once stoic and hedonistic, resilient and fragile, obedient yet rebellious. And, you know, you, you can still visit Berlin today and come to a traffic light, a pedestrian crossing, and I have stood beside, you know, a pierced and tattooed anarchist. And he or she will be waiting for the light to change at a deserted intersection before walking across the street. It's, it's, such, a, it's such a contradiction. It's so, it's so dynamic. No wonder the place has to constantly invent itself.
5: And I think there was some of that tension in Frederick the Great wasn't there? You know, a kind of a, a almost a would-be artist and poet and yet also a a soldier and a, and a commander.
3: Oh yes, he he hated he hated he was brought up with strict strict discipline he was given given a, a regiment of giants to command i think when he was 8 or 9 he was forced to go on parade and he hated it he just he was probably gay but that wasn't really allowed to be uh, to be brought out at the time and he found expression, mostly through music, and he composed music. He built the most beautiful palace, the uh, the Pink Sans Souci in Potsdam. And again, there's that dilemma, the two sides of Berlin, the conformist and the, the independent thinker, the free thinker.
5: And again, he was also a military man, wasn't he? And he had ambitions for his Berlin and his Prussia. Yes,
3: yes, where well, he pushed, he pushed and very successfully pushed into uh, Silesia, then Poland seized it, expanded Prussia dramatically, when really all he wanted to be, he didn't want to be on horseback, he didn't want to be leading the troops, he wanted to be back in Sans Souci um, uh, writing letters to Voltaire or playing musical instruments.
5: So visitors to Berlin today obviously can see some of the remnants of that time, as you say, in Sanssouci, which is really, I mean, that's, if you call a, a palace a confection, that's about the closest thing to it, <laughs> isn't it? It's really a, a, it's an iced cake of a building, really. Yes, um, yes. but also, you know, some things that are, are slightly more what we might consider Germanic, so like the Brandenburg Gate and and other of those buildings. If you like, there was a golden age of sorts under Frederick the Great, Do but you, then around the turn of the nineteenth century, there was a bit of a change of fortunes for his land, Prussia, and for Berlin. So, what was happening at that time? Once the eighteenth century turned over into the
3: I think it's important to to go back to this i the idea that Berlin is a city that has forever been in a process of becoming, never being, you know, in, in its identity, not. Set in stone or brick, its story is always being something ongoing. Again and again, the city reinventing itself, reconciling this uh, a mythic idea of itself as the greatest capital in Europe, uh, reconciling that with the bitter, bloody, buoyant past of of plagues and destruction. The architecture of the time, especially through Schinkel, it, it is so solid and it's so positive and so totally lacking in doubt and linked to the Greeks and the Romans, as as if to say, this is what we are building here is permanent, it will last
5: forever. So uh, after the sureness of Friedrich Wilhelm and Frederick the Great, who've created both this empire and a city, so solid, as you say, at the start of the 19th century, the fortunes turned somewhat for Prussia and war was coming from elsewhere in Europe, from the West, from Napoleon. How did that affect Berlin and the land of Brandenburg? Ah, oh, yes. Well, Napoleon was, was there
3: very briefly. And in, in 1806, he captured Berlin, having destroyed the Prussian army at, at Jena and Auerstedt. He walked, you know at the Brandenburg Gate, where all the tourists assemble now, Napoleon rode through there on his white charger. the new Emperor looking glowering under his hat at the defeated Berliners. His effect on berlin was was not that huge, you know still it was the the reactionary Hohenzoeren who had in the end ruled Berlin for what was it five hundred years, five hundred to six hundred years. It's because of them. Much of the Enlightenment passed Prussia by, and also in Berliners, in Prussians, certainly in that time, there was this continued obedience. This um, that we have, we have to follow our very strong rulers. So, for example, uh, in about forty years after Napoleon, there was the eighteen forty-eight liberal revolution all across Europe, uh, transforming uh, northern Europe certainly. And it came to nothing in the city. The uh, the Prussian army surrounded the upstart National Assembly and ordered its delegates to disperse, which they did in orderly ranks, never to return. (laughs) So demands for universal male suffrage and parliamentary democracy and individual rights based on, on natural law. All denied. In fact, criticism of um, the Holland as the Kaiser by then was uh, even an expression of unhappiness or discontent with the government was forbidden. It was illegal. And and then you know what a what a century of change. Because then just another what is it twenty twenty three years after that, Bismarck, who grew up just outside Berlin, went to church in Berlin. He created Germany, the the nation state with. Berlin as the capital and Kaiser Wilhelm as emperor. A remarkable period of change from Napoleon to then the
1: Franco-Prussian War. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster.
4: This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com Twizzlers.
5: And of course, over this period of the 19th century, although the Enlightenment passed, Berlin by. And as you say, sort of political revolution wasn't successful, but the industrial revolution was certainly making its mark, wasn't it then? And I think that's something we talk about Berlin's known as the city of light, light bulbs and other technology was really being developed there a lot at that time. Oh, absolutely.
3: Through through the latter half of the 19th century and into the beginning of the 20th century industry, it was the industrial centre of the continent in the first decade of the 20th century berlin's population swelled to almost 2 million souls and its its industry was racing to dominate europe above all to better british industry but then of course well we know what happened in 1914 germany went to war with the uh, declared aim of defending the fatherland but it's true i think its true objective was to expand its territory and market seizing raw materials by annexing most of Belgium and eastern France, which was much what the Brits were doing, but in other parts of the world.
5: Obviously, as you say, we know what happened in those years from 14 to 18. And more importantly, what happened after 18, where that left the German economy and Berlin. So politically and economically, that was obviously a very rough time for Germany. But how did that affect the city and the culture at that time?
3: I certainly can't. Begin to imagine the mood in defeated Berlin in 1918. It came as such a shock after this brutal, terrible four-year war, to have lost, to have gained nothing, and under the Treaty of Versailles to be stripped of any remnant of national pride or, or arrogance. And the defeat stripped away Berlin's sort of Prussia's gaudy imperial skin. And politically, Lenin, who of course had just uh, taken or was in the process of completing his uh, revolution in Russia, Lenin sowed seeds of world revolution in, um, in Berlin. Again, this is something we, we forget. He sent millions of marks and 300 skilled agitators from Moscow, disguised as uh, embassy staff, to ferment Revolution! It really, his his people energized the uh, the nineteen nineteen Spartacus uprising, in which workers seized government buildings and almost brought Germany to the brink of a Bolshevik coup. This is, you know, this is one year, twelve months after the uh, end of the First World War, and then they, the uh, Spartacus uprising, was put down by the savage reactionary Freikorps from which Hitler mm, would later draw his essay Stormtroopers. They crushed the uprising, hacking through the, uh, the strikers with bayonets, machine-gunning unarmed demonstrators outside the Reichstag. It was such a, a brutal, brutal period of
5: history. And of course, most of us, we know the impact of the First World War on the economic situation there. We perhaps don't know as much about that sort of revolutionary era. What we remember is the the hedonism, if you like, the cultural flowering from people like Christopher Isherwood and films like Cabaret based on his writing. And I guess it's from that we get that idea of Germany as a real cultural hothouse, don't we?
3: Absolutely. Both the political revolution and I guess, the social revolution were fired, inflamed, galvanized by the loss of the old steady values of morality, of ethics, of decency. So if you were young and rich in the mid-1920s, Berlin was the fastest city in the world. headlamps glittered off the asphalt, neon flashed on cinema facades. The, The city was consumed in a kind of artistic hedonistic orgy. It was a, a remarkable time, but at the same time, that was just the minority, yes, because of Cabaret and because of Christopher Isherwood and because of the excitement of it. That's what we, we think of when we think of Berlin, the golden 20s. But for, for, what, seven-eighths of the city, there was little work there. They were living in squalor. Many were living in squalor. It was a hard, hard life.
5: And that was before the crash of 1929. And obviously, we know what happened after that crash and, and the impact on the political scene in Berlin.
3: Uh, it, yeah, the 1929 financial crash, that changed everything. Up until that point, well, I think the uh, the historian Peter Gay puts it best. He says, the Weimar Republic was born in defeat, lived in turmoil and died in disaster. Oh, God. <laughs> it was a good idea at the time, but... Not, not a good end, and and when the crash came, it and the rampant unemployment were exploited by the Nazis. Nightmare inflation had eaten away at the savings of millions of Germans, and now the Freikorps, those arrogant soldiers who had "quote unquote" liberated Berlin, they started to march under the swastika.
5: And I think w- we know what happened both in that horrible conflict. Well, we know what happened in the 30s with the rise of Hitler to power and the National Socialists. We probably have an idea about his plans for what Berlin should look like under Albert Speer. And we also know that for all those very heady ideas, when the Soviets arrived in 1945, and after that time, much of Berlin was in ruins, wasn't it? And the face of the city was changed. And of course, the political culture was changed completely. Absolutely, Paul.
3: It, the, you know, again, Berlin defined by war, by another war. In 1945, after the end of the Second World War, 60 million Europeans were dead. 90% of Berlin's city center was in ruins. Streets were choked with 70 million cubic meters of rubble. Skeletal refugees ate horse cadavers and grass. And in March, Marches comes, arrives the the heroic Red Army and makes defeated Berlin part of their empire. Its clocks were changed to Moscow times. And um, its survivors were put to work dismantling the Reich the soviets stripped all the city's workshops this is this is where berlin's remarkable industry powerful industry it was dismantled then and shipped to russia the whole german rocket industry for example was loaded onto a 30 wagon train uh, after which the track itself was pulled up and dispatched to uh, soviet russia it stripped the city and that was that was basically in The six weeks before the um, Western Allies arrived, the Soviets kept out, because of agreements between the leaders, the Soviets kept out most of the uh, Western
5: Allied troops out of the city until late June 1945. By which time, it was a fait accompli. They'd already done what they set out to do in terms of, uh, if you like, looting the industrial riches and the cultural and, and actual riches of Berlin at that time.
3: Um, it's millions, millions of books were taken. I can't remember. There thousands of paintings and also some slightly less than 3,000 kilos of gold, <laughs> much of which the Nazis, of course, had stolen themselves. But that was taken from the Reichsbank's vaults and shipped to the Kremlin. I just, you know, we visit, we picture the city now with its lovely broad boulevards and going out for a cafe and kuchen and nice and, and, and have a nice time and maybe a lie in. And this is only 70, 80 years ago that the city was a wasteland again.
5: And Obviously, in those 60, 70, 80 years, most of us who are too young to remember the war and the immediate aftermath of the war have a picture of Berlin shaped by that period of division when West Berlin was a little island in East Germany and particularly in East Berlin. And that had a really profound effect on, on the city, didn't it? The division, obviously, we know that there was a period where the division was less solid, but then the wall went up and that had a huge impact on the city, didn't it?
3: Yes, you're you're absolutely right, Paul. It was an island. That's when I first lived in Berlin. West Berlin was surrounded by a ring of wall, and you couldn't go through it unless you drove out through East Germany, because West Berlin was locked, stuck, stranded, (laughs) adrift within the communist Warsaw Pact. One felt isolated. It, It was an island surrounded by the Red Army, And it was kept alive, of course, by huge subsidies from Bonn and Washington. And West Germans who moved there, the city was dying, but West Germans were encouraged to move there. Their taxes were slashed, uh, removal costs reimbursed. There was conscription in West Germany at the time, as in East Germany, and males who moved to West Berlin became exempt from military service in the Bundeswehr. And so tens of thousands of young people were drawn to the island and who promptly <laughs> rebelled against its authorities, which is really interesting. This is the 1968. So here again, it's the two sides of Berlin. They wanted to reject the Nazi legacy, and they were convinced that Western capitalism, which was keeping them safe and fed, uh, they thought it was a reincarnation of the Third Reich. And paradoxically, out of this, these are the 68ers, they did break from the um, past and and I think freed themselves from centuries of historical fear and transforming Germany. For example, that was the time when the Green Movement, die Grünen, that grew out of the anti-nuclear environmental uh, peace movement, the new left, and aiming to foster an ecological uh, sustainable society.
5: And at that time as well, musically and culturally, it was a bit of a hot house as well. Those young people who'd moved there, and it, and it drew others, didn't it? Who had who saw what was going on there? Partly to do with the culture, partly to do with how cheap it was to live there.
3: Oh, yeah, it was so cheap. And again, it was this party town for for different reasons. And in the 1970s, there there was Lou Reed in town walking on the wild side. Most famously, I suppose, David Bowie moved into town to reinvent himself, recorded Heroes, opened a music club. Nick Cave followed, moving into Rondienstrasse, hanging out at... um, a bar called Riziko, where um, they're sowing the bad seeds. You know, It was, uh, again, a remarkable town, a city which is dying and falling apart. There's this influx of young anarchists, Greens, West Germans who, who didn't want to serve in the army, who were free thinkers. It was, uh, again, another remarkable time.
5: This emblem really of of oppression and and division has gone. But of course, there were wonderful things in terms of freedom for particularly people from the East, and, and we would say the end of that era. But that brought its own challenges as well as benefits, didn't it? Of course. How would you reconnect to
3: underground systems, the U-Bahn and the S-Bahn? How do you reconnect power systems which had been disconnected since the nineteen sixty one? Water systems. So there were all sorts of logistical challenges. Touching again on the party side, you know, when the uh, the border cracked, a third of all the buildings in the east of the city they were vacant. This is just the music. So these techno-activists from both sides, they went to neighborhoods called Ostkreuz or Friedrichshain, and they improvised uh, new clubs in abandoned basements, warehouses, power stations and uh, their music, this uh, Berlin techno, it started to reunite the city. And clubbers, Aussies and Vessies, young Easterners and young Westerners, they, they came together beneath the death strip which had once separated them. Again, a very fascinating time. And I think to look at the more profound I would say, more important trend. I think one must mention how Germans and especially Berliners have dealt with their history, this dark history. Since certainly beginning in the West after the Wirtschaftswunder, coming out of the 1960s, certainly out of 1968, and then later in East Germany as well, Germans, I think in a courageous, humane and moving manner, began to subject themselves to national psychoanalysts. And for me, this painful process is evident in the Holocaust Memorial, in the Jewish Museum, in the husk of the Kaiser Wilhelm Memorial Church, destroyed by Allied bombers, in former Stasi uh, prisons. And at the heart of this process is this Freudian idea that the repressed, or at least unspoken, will will fester like a canker unless it is brought to light this insistence on memory, something anciently Jewish and now Western, the conviction that for the psychic health of a society, as well as for an individual, past atrocities must be unearthed and confessed as a condition of healing. And that is what all of Germany has gone through, especially since 1989, since the fall of the wall. And I think it's a a courageous thing to have done.
5: And I think that that goes to the heart of why Berlin is such a fascinating place to visit today. Because in a way, although it has the Brandenburg Gate and it has the Reichstag, people visit for a sense of the past and how it seeped into the present. So you can visit the the great museums and walk along onto Den Linden and you can you can visit that very moving Holocaust memorial. But also spot those Stolpersteinen, those little memorials to the Jewish people who were taken from Berlin. By the Nazis that are embedded in the pavement. So, I think in, in terms of what you can see in Berlin, there are sites all over the city that will tell you something about the people who live there. I'd like to ask you to share five sites in Berlin that you think reveal something about the city's past and, and what makes it special.
3: I just want to pause on the Stolpersteiner, which you mentioned, which some listeners may not know about. But initially in Germany and now across all of Europe, in perhaps the largest artwork of all time in terms of its physicality the geography it's covered there are 75000 individual brass stumble stones stolpersteine that have been planted among the cobbles of about 500 towns and cities and each one is engraved with the name of the individual who lived in that building outside which this stumblestone has been mounted in the in the cobbles replacing a cobble the individual who was murdered during the Nazi years. Each plaque begins with the same words: "Here wohnt, here lived," followed by the name, date of birth, year of de- deportation, and identity of the death camp or place of execution. It's a remarkable, a remarkable, humble reflection. So again, so courageous, so humane, so moving, and it's not paid for by the states. Each one has been paid for by individuals who live in the house where a, a most often a Jewish resident, of a Jewish family lived, but also homosexuals or other persecuted minorities lived, and if they paid. It's, it used to be ninety; it's now one hundred and twenty euros to put. The name of the person outside the door where that person
5: lived. I think that's a good reminder. We often say when we're visiting a city, remember to look up when you're walking around. And I think in, in Berlin and other towns like that, you need to remember to look down as well. There's There's history under your feet and there's detail there that you need to see. And they're all over Berlin, these brass caps, and they catch the
3: sunlight. And we, as uh, visitors to the city or residents in the city, we are forced to, to, or we make ourselves lean and look and read and in a way bow and pay respect to the uh, individual who was so cruelly uh, removed and killed.
5: Well, listen, I am going to force you as a long-term resident of Berlin to to select five places that you really urge listeners to visit and uh, and tell us a little bit about why each one is important and what it tells us about the city.
3: Oh, what fun. <laughs> How can I reduce it to five? Okay, first for me must be the, uh, the Lustgarten, the, uh, which is a pretty obvious one, the Pleasure Garden at the eastern end of Unter den Linden on the Museum Island. And this is important because it, this one spot at the historic heart of Berlin is where one can see the four estates of society. There's the Berliner Schloss, representing the, through the monarchy or the government. There's the Dom or cathedral, representing religion. There's the former Arsenal, now the German Historical Museum, which is the military, very, very important in Berlin's history. And then there's the museums culture. Um, and that's the Altus, the Neues, the Bode and the Pergamon Museums, four of the most remarkable museums in the world. And they were conceived, as was the British Museum, they were conceived as a pedagogic. The first museum, now called the Altus, was, uh, was built at the same time as the British Museum. And its role was to exhibit art, both to educate and aggrandize the nation And one can see what Carl Friedrich Schinkel, the architect, how he conceived this two-story structure with the um, colonnade and open portico linking the rough outer world, that's our world, with the sublime inner sanctuary. The portico's walls used to have uh, murals, they were destroyed in the Second World War, which depicted an idealized history of civilization. It, it's a central dome was uh, modelled on the Pantheon. It's uh, I, I just love the optimism <laughs> it, it, the the cultural mission. So the, the Lustgarten is the first one,
5: and as you say, that's that's a good place to stop and think about the older history of Berlin, the Schloss, the castle, as you say. And obviously, not the same castle that was built back in medieval times, but that was where that moment the flooding of the original, the basement of the castle by the people happened, what, 600 years ago, something like that. That's incredible. Well, that's that's great. So where else would uh, would we be sending our visitor to Berlin, Rory?
3: it It depends how much of a night owl they are. <laughs> but so if one has the energy, it's the closest you will get to capturing the spirit of the golden 20s. It's Berlin's clubs, <laughs> so if you can stay up late and you can get past the bouncers, go clubbing. You know, go to Bergheim, the uh, the temple of techno, uh, the most well known club in Berlin, uh, or go to Trezor, which uh, the original Trezor was was the first club that was in no man's land, in in the vault of an old bank, under what had been the death strip. There's Watergate sisyphus and well again it depends on well it depends on more than energy at night it's uh, the kit kat club <laughs> which is uh, it's a place where you can dance there's a lounge area a massage room a swimming pool and it's also a um, it's a sex club it's a sex club so whatever takes one's fancy happens there so don't go there under any false illusions. One does not go to observe.
5: And, of course, even that name, the Kat Club, harks back to Isherwood and, and the days of cabaret. So it really does remind you not just of... You know that that hedonism of the young people of the the 90s, but also way back to the 20s. Indeed, it's up to the individual how
3: much of that hedonism they want to partake. I'm not recommending it. I'm just mentioning
5: it. <laughs> okay, we'll we'll make no moral judgments on people's choices here. But uh, can you tell us somewhere else that you'd like to you'd like to take people?
3: Well, the, there is the Berlin Wall Memorial on Bernauerstrasse which is um, Benaustrasse, a street which was one of the borders between the Berlin districts of Wedding and Mitte. It's been a focal point of the division of Berlin. Houses used to, uh, what they do again now, uh, the houses that ran along the northeastern side of the street, they were in, in East Berlin. The other side of the street was in West Berlin, and when the wall went up which initially wasn't a wall it was just barbed wire east berliners saw what was happening and they started jumping out of windows you know, some breaking their legs um, being saved by firemen sliding down ropes to just to get into the west and and tunnels were built many of the i think it's about 100 tunnels were built over the years of the wall many of them under Bernaustrasse. and it's a it's it's an excellent Museum to go to get a feeling of what it was like, because as a uh, a dear friend of mine, a, a a and he hates this, a quote unquote, an East Berlin writer, Thomas Brusig said. So there is nowhere apart from along Benaustrasse where one can see the wall. You, well, you can see about a kilometer of it, a very short kilometer of it on Bernaustrasse, but there's nowhere where you can see the inhumanity of it. The, that's all gone. A very good museum. And fourth suggestion is, uh, well, it's back to the music. It's the, uh, the Hansa Sound Studio, which uh, on on Straße, which again was right, by where the wall was running. And and that's where, well, <laughs> not just uh, Bowie, Iggy Pop, Brian Eno, who else? U2, uh, Nick Cave, R.E.M., Boney M., Nina Hagen, they've all recorded at Hansa, many of them in the Meistersaal, uh, the uh, the master hall, the master room, the big hall by the wall, uh, which was a studio since the 1960s. And and it's where David Bowie recorded heroes with uh, Tony Visconti and guitarist Robert Fripp. And when he was putting together the words, because the words came together right at the end of recording the whole album, he couldn't get a line. And he was sitting in the control room and looking out the studio window at the wall. And there was his producer, Tony Visconti, kissing his his lover at the time beside the wall. And that became that line in
5: Heroes. (laughs) And you could visit the Hansa Studios and see that Meister Hull.
3: Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah. And something I haven't mentioned at all, it's the lakes. Berlin is ringed with the most beautiful countryside. This is the the Brandenburg Lakes, out in the west, out towards Potsdam, but also in the east and to the north. There's miles of forest and lakes for swimming in summer or cruising or skating in winter. And you can ride the U-Bahn, the underground, if you're in the west, to uh, the last stop called Krummelanka, which I think is uh, thirty minutes from the middle of town, from Mitte. And go for a ten-minute walk, and there you are, by Schlachtensee. And you can go for a swim. You can go boating. And it, it's one of the reasons. Oh, it's one of the reasons I so love Berlin and and see it as such a living city, a young city for all its ghosts it's fresh and green because of those woods and lakes but also of course because it's always reinventing itself
5: and as you say combining those two themes Tempelhof which was the city airport that was being redeveloped i think a few years ago and and the city decided to go a different way
3: uh Tempelhof which is is through which which was in the american sector and through which west berlin was saved during the uh, the Soviet blockade in 1948. And as you say, about 10 years ago, there were put about by some evil developers that the whole place should be turned into a, a, a apartment complexes. Berliners resisted and it's now a huge park bang in the middle of the city.
5: Well, listen, Rory, I've uh, asked you for your five places to visit. Have you got one final tip from your many years of experience living in Berlin for any visitors to uh, enhance their time there? take
3: a walk. It's uh, especially along uh, the Landwerk Canal, one of the canals which goes right through the middle of Berlin. The Landwerk Canal going through Kreuzberg along beside Neukölln. It's, it's just it's a beautiful place to walk. You sit in the sun at, at, at any number of cafes and watch Europe's youth stroll by, and you should do it on a Sunday morning because Berliners have refined Sunday brunch into the planet's most relaxing meal. It's, it's, and there's nothing like Sunday brunch in Berlin, but spend two to three hours doing it. You don't, you're not rushing through a bit of Marmite on toast.
5: Fabulous. Well, listen, thank you, Rory. Um, it's been a huge pleasure to walk through the streets of Berlin with you and to hear your tips. Thank you, Paul. That was Rory McLean. His book, Berlin, Imagine a City, published in the UK by Weidenfeld and Nicholson, vividly depicts the most pivotal moments of change, turmoil, destruction and rebirth of the German capital. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.
0: Thanks for listening to the first episode of our new series, History's Greatest Cities. To get access to more episodes where we'll be exploring different European cities, to find more episodes released weekly, search for History's Greatest Cities wherever you listen to your podcasts.